So I'm so glad you're here. Um, we just started a new book in the Torah, uh, Sefer Devarim, uh, also known as uh, Deuteronomy. And, uh, you know, whatever is going on in the Torah is going on in the world. And so I want to share a story with you, um, something that happened to me. And um, maybe we'll go over a couple of points that we said yesterday, but we're going to add and flesh them out. So um, stay with me. Um, so anyway, whatever's going on in the Torah is going on in the world, which is to say the best newspaper in the whole wide world is the Torah. And um, it, it can get pretty exact, actually. And so this is an example of just how exact the correlation can be. I'm telling you from my own life. Um, you know, we have seven aliyahs um, every Shabbos, which means that the, the portion of the week, the Torah portion of the week, is divided up into seven different parts. And one of the ways of learning the Torah is you take whatever is going on, you take the first aliyah, and that correlates with Sunday, and the second aliyah is Monday, and then that way you learn a little piece of the Parsha, and it's a way to sort of make um, one's Torah study more digestible, and then you're living with what's going on in the Torah and everything like that. And then also, sometimes you see some pretty amazing correlations as well. Um, so, it's kind of like the daily paper, if you will. Um, so, a few weeks ago, it was Parshas Pinchas, and it was Friday, and I was doing the Friday section, um, the, sixth, the sixth section, Shishi, the sixth Aliyah. And um, it starts off talking about uh, Rosh Hashanah. And so, I was thinking, you know, it's the middle of the summer, it's like July, but I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, right now it's a little bit Rosh Hashanah, because that's what we're learning about. And so I was kind of just uh, thinking about that, it's kind of Rosh Hashanah right now. So then I started thinking about Rosh Hashanah. Then I, I started thinking about something that I might want to say on Rosh Hashanah, and I got an idea, and, you know, these things fly in and out of my head, so I know I'm never going to remember this thought come Rosh Hashanah time in a few months, so I take out my Palm Pilot and I advance it a couple of months to Rosh Hashanah and I write down Rosh Hashanah Drasha and I wrote down just like a couple of notes just about the idea so that I would remember it. Anyway, a few minutes later, really literally just a few minutes later, I leave the Kolel, that's where I was learning, and I walk outside and there's a, there's a Jew in the parking lot, one person, and he comes up to me and he says, oh, he says, I'm happy to see you. He says, can you give the Rosh Hashanah drasha in my shul this year? Now, it's, it's July. It's the beginning of July. And I said, you know, it's funny you say that. <laughs> I took out my palm pilot. I explained to him what I just explained to you. Whatever is going on in the Parsha is going on in the world. And... Um, you know, sometimes Hashem opens up our eyes and allows us to really see it. Whether we see it or not, it's happening. Um, so with that, it's just an introduction. The idea that we're entering into a new book of the Torah is very, very significant. And, um, and it allows us to see, so to speak, cosmically speaking, where we are in the universe. Now, I want to get into more detail about that. But I want to introduce another idea right now first, which is that um, more of a general idea, but it will get deeper, which is that Sefer Devarim, the, the book of Deuteronomy, is, um, is also known uh, in the Torah literature as Mishnah Torah, which means a repetition of the Torah. 
And there's all sorts of amazing things about Sefer Devarim. Actually, really, really amazing things. Um, just one thing, uh, just to, off the bat is, everyone should know that, that Moshe Rabbeinu started giving this uh, talk um, at the beginning of uh, the month of Shvat, um, most famously known as the month of Tubishvat. Um, but um, it's the 11th month. It says right in the Torah, the first day of the 11th month, Moshe Rabbeinu started speaking these words. Everyone should know that um, Sefer Devarim is a little bit different from the other four books of the Torah, because the first four books of the Torah were dictated letter by letter, literally, from God to Moshe. Whereas the fifth book is Moshe speaks it out. So then you would say, well, wait a second, why does it have the status of the other four books of the Torah? Let it be like Tanakh or Ksuvim or something like that, which is also the word of God, but relatively speaking, it has... It's a little bit lower down the ladder in terms of its, you know, its utmost clarity being the word of God. It's not filtered through any any agency of of man or ego or something like that. Um, still the word of God. Anything that's Torah is the word of God. But there's a clarity of the five books of the Chumash of what we call the Torah that just is just the utmost, utmost clearest re- revelation. So the question is, why does the fifth book of the Torah, Sefer Devarim, why does it have the status of the other four books of the Torah? Well, the reason is because Moshe Rabbeinu refined himself to the highest, 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 highest level till he disappeared absolutely completely. He was a clear window through which the Word of God was able to come through un, unchanged, which is awesome. That's absolutely awesome. When it says that Moshe Rabbeinu was the unav, was the, it's a bad translation, but, you know, we say humble, was the most humble person, that means he was the clearest window, the clearest window to transmit the pure, undiluted um, vision of God. Okay. But, um, but there's a more practical explanation also. This fifth book is included and has the status of the other four books because after Moshe Rabbeinu said it, so you say they're his words, that's fine, but after he said it, Hashem said, Okay, now write it down. So that's, that's actually an amazing thing, because Moshe Rabbeinu said it, and then Hashem said, good, now write it down. So it became the word of God, because God said, now write it down, in my name. So Moshe said it, but then it becomes God's word. Now this is really, has very large implications for us in our own lives. You know, I was just learning the Meor Nayim, the Chernobyl Rebbe, on Parshas Devar. And basically, what he's saying is, is that when a person says Torah, that that's sort of God speaking through him. And that that gives a person great joy and great yira. And through that joy and that yira, they're actually able to elevate themselves to the source, to the root of problems. And they're able to sort of like nullify decrees in the root. So you have to, that's a very, very big topic. You have to spend a lot more time on that, but I'm just kind of placing it in your head. If you want to see it in the Gemara, it's in Moed Katan, um, Tez Zion, Ahmed Beis, um, or in the Meor Enayim, in, 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 in Parshas Devarim. He goes into great detail. But anyway, the first word, the first letter of Sefer Devarim is the letter Aleph. Aleph, you know, stands for Hashem because it's the Gematria 1. And also, if you break down the letter Aleph, it's two Yuds and a Vav, which is the number 26, which is, correlates with the Yud Ke Vav Ke, the name of God. 
So in other words, the very first letter, there's sort of like already just a hint that this prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu is coming from God himself, from the highest, highest level. Not only that, but the first word of Sefer Devarim is the word Eleh. Eleh is Gematria 36. Now, from the time we know that Moshe left this world on Zion Adar, the seventh of the month of Adar. So if you count from the first day of Shvat, when the Torah says he began speaking these words, to the day he left the world, it's 36 days. So the very first word of Sefer Devarim is already a blueprint of the nature of the prophecy and a blueprint of the book that's coming out. Because the very first word is the number of days he spoke. There's so much, the level of prophecy is so intense here. And you see it like just right off the bat. Okay, so now let's return to the original question. I actually haven't even phrased the question yet. But if the nature of the contents of Devarim are a recapitulation of everything that's happened to the Jews. Remember, this is also kind of colloquially referred to as Moshe Rabbeinu's farewell address. If his farewell address is recounting all of the struggles of the Jewish people and everything that's happened for the last 40 years and even before then, right? It's a repetition of the Torah, Mishnah Torah. How is it then that there's so many new mitzvahs? In other words, if you're going to review something, you say, okay, now here's our review session, and now you're telling me things you never told me before. Well, what kind of review session is that? That's new learning. That's not review. So we have a great tension here. We're calling it review, and yet at the same time, there's scads of brand new information. So based on this, I'd like to say the following. And it applies to our lives applies to the world, and it certainly applies to the Torah. You see, all of us make a very fundamental mistake about learning Torah. Here's the assumption that virtually all of us make. We say the following. If I'm smart enough, and if I'm holy enough, and if I'm diligent enough, and if I spend the amount of time that's really required when I look at the text, when I look at the Torah, I will understand everything that is put in front of me. If I meet the following criteria, if I'm smart enough, if I'm holy enough, if I'm diligent enough, if I spend enough time with the text, I'll see everything that's in the text. Virtually all of us, whether consciously or unconsciously, think that that's accurate. It's absolutely not true. It's not true. Why is it not true? Because the Torah is infinite. The Torah is infinite. Think about all the people in, throughout Jewish history, all of, the great, all of the great people who have met that criteria. They were holy enough. They were smart enough. They were diligent enough. They did spend the time that was required. And still, did they exhaust everything that was to be said about the Torah? Not, not, even, not even remotely close. Not even remotely close. And that's because the Torah itself is infinite, and the Torah itself is not a book. This is the mistake that we're making all of the time. We think the Torah is a book. The Torah is not a book. The Torah is the fabric of all of existence. It's the infinite compressed into the finite. It happens to be accessible in book form. 
But don't kid yourself that it's a book. You're living inside the Torah. The universe is made out of the Torah. How can it be that what's going on in the Torah correlates with what's going on in the world? Because it's the infinite compressed into the finite. The finite is reflecting the infinite. Okay. But we have to go deeper. The point is like this. Why is it if I meet all these criteria, I'm holy enough, I'm smart enough, I'm diligent enough, I spend the time requisite, how is it that I don't see everything that's in there? And the reason is something very amazing. Well, I'd like to suggest this as a reason. is because Hashem deliberately constructed the world in such a way that you will only see something for the first time when you look a second time and a third time and a fourth time. You'll only see it the first time when you go back to it repeatedly. Now, this is true in our lives also. We have certain experiences and we say to ourselves, you know, I'm stuck in this place in my life, God. I, whatever lesson that you want to teach me, I, for sure I've gotten it. For sure I've gotten it. So let me move on. And Hashem says, you know what? You haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> you haven't gotten it yet because I haven't revealed it yet. You have to be in this place in order for you to be in this place because it's going to be revealed in this place, but it's not time for it to be revealed yet. When it gets revealed and you're in this place, then you're going to be able to elevate it and move on to the next place. That's, that's a very humbling it's a very humbling thought. It's a very amazing thought. So what we're saying, what we're saying again, is that, is that Hashem deliberately constructed the world in such a way that we'll only see something for the first time when we revisit it. And that's the case also in our own lives. That sometimes we're stuck in a place in our life and we go, well, God, whatever it is, just... I'll, I'll fix it. Just show it to me and I'm going to fix it. And then I'll get to move on to whatever the next level is. But the reality is that sometimes it's not time yet for that thing to be revealed and yet we have to be in that place in order to fix that thing. So this is something that requires a lot of thought. But it's part of this, it's part of this blueprint. You know, we touched on it a little bit not long ago. This idea that we didn't move in the desert. Sometimes the cloud stayed on top of the Mishkan. See, remember, our travels in the desert were dictated for when the cloud moved or didn't move above the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert. When it moved, we moved. When it stayed, we stayed. And there's a lot of repetition when it recounts this in the Torah. And it says that that repetition is to give praise to the Jews because Sometimes they wanted to stay because it was a good spot, but the cloud moved. And they actually moved, even though they wanted to stay. And sometimes they wanted to move because it was a crummy spot, but the cloud didn't move, and so they stayed. So they stayed when they wanted to go, and they went when they wanted to stay. It's an awesome thing. It shows how much they gave themselves how much we gave ourselves over to God and to His will. It also shows that in our own life, that not everything is revealed at the instant moment that you look at it. In other words, 
you think if I'm, if I'm holy enough and I'm smart enough and I'm diligent enough, I'll get everything that's in the text at that moment. We think in our lives, okay, I'm in this, I'm in this moment in my life, I'm in this parsha, quote unquote, of my life. If I just look at it enough, I'm going to be able to understand it. But we're seeing now that there are times that the way God constructed the world is you won't see it for the first time until you look at it another time, another time, another time, another time. This place in your life, this partial in your life, what needs to be revealed, what needs to be fixed, it won't necessarily, you won't see it necessarily the first time that you look at it. It might be another day, another week, another year, whatever it is, until that thing becomes clear. Become, before that thing becomes revealed. And it's not from lack of looking. It just hasn't been revealed yet. In other words, a lot of frustration comes because we say, God, I'm being very diligent. I'm in this place in my life. I want to go on to the next place in my life, whatever it is. And I'm being very diligent. I'm thinking about all of my relationships. I'm thinking about everything that I have to do. Anything I have to fix. I'm on top of everything. So why, why am I not going on to the next place? What is it? Well, it could be that that thing has not been revealed yet. That you have to fix at that place in your life. It just hasn't opened up yet. God hasn't put it there yet for us to see. I hope that this parallel between Torah study and fixing whatever we need to fix in our lives is clear. I hope that it's clear. I hope that I'm communicating. Um, Let's go on. Let's go on. So I want to I want to sort of broaden the canvas a little bit and talk about just the notion of where Sefer Devarim falls out in terms of sort of like the, the cosmic map, if you will. So so what we see here is the letter Hey two times Hey and Hey, but what we're, and I'm going to explain it in a moment, but what we're really seeing here is the intersection of time and space. So let's talk about t- space for a moment. So the realm that we inhabit, this world, Olamasia, Kabbalistically speaking, there are four different realms, and we're in the bottom realm. Um, it correlates with the four-letter name of Hashem, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. This world, also known as Malchus, is the bottom He. So that's where we are in terms of space. It's the bottom He of Hashem's name. Now, let's talk about time for a moment. Because within this realm, we read the Torah. And we read different parts of the Torah at different times in the year. Sefer Devarim, and we're going to get more into this in a moment, Sefer Devarim always begins the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av, which is very significant. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Sefer Devarim, now there are five books of the Torah, and each one correlates with another letter of Hashem's name. Now you say, well, wait a second, didn't we just say there are four letters to Hashem's name? How do you get five books of the Torah out of four letters of Hashem's name? So the Ari HaKodesh, whose your site is today, um, points out something quite amazing. If you look at the letter Yud, there's a little, there's something called the Kutsho Yud. 
It's a little sort of thorn-shaped, um, uh, you know, line on top of the Yud. And that correlates with Sefer Breshis, with the book of Genesis. And then you have the rest of the wood, Yud would be Sefer Shmos. One thing I'd just like to add about that is sometimes Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus, is called Sefer Sheni, the second book. And the reason why they call it the second book is because it's a continuation of Genesis, of Breshis. So just one side point that I'm pointing out is it's very interesting that both of these books will correlate with the Yud because it's the same letter. And both of those books are in some ways one long book. So, so there's sort of a narrative integrity, if you will, to that sort of very Kabbalistic point. Um, anyway, once you understand that Sefer Shmos and Sefer Breshis are the letter Yud, then it makes perfect sense that the last letter, the fifth letter, correlates, or the fourth letter, which is really the fifth, correlates with Sefer Devarim. So, so in time then, because we're reading different sections of the Torah at different times, in time, we've entered into the letter Hey. So now you see space-wise, we're in the letter Hey, because that's the bottom letter of Hashem's name, that's Malchus. And time-wise, we're now up to, in the calendar, where we read Devarim, which is also the letter Hey. So we have Hey and Hey. So I was thinking about that, Hey, Hey. And then I, I thought, wait a second, isn't there a sage in the Talmud named ben Hehe? And I thought, well, i got to find out what ben Hehe says, right? Because that's obviously speaking to us right this second. So if you look in Pirkei Avos, and I think it's kind of nice that it's chapter Hey, right? Mishnah 26. And by the way, interestingly, um, the, the sixth chapter of Pirkei Avos has a, special, has a special status. Here, I'm going to read to you from the art school. This is about the sixth chapter. This chapter is not part of Tractate Avos, but is a collection of braces. Okay? So, in other words, it's an add-on the sixth chapter of Avos. So what's kind of interesting is that, what did we just say, that the hay is the bottom, it's the, it's the finish point, right, of, of you know, of, of the map of the universe. It's the bottom part, right, the end. In terms of the Torah, it's also the last book, it's also the end. So ben Hey, his Mishnah is the very last Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. It's the last Mishnah of chapter 5, which is the end of Avos, because chapter 6 is braces. It's an add-on. So that's, that's kind of cool. Okay, chapter 26, Mishnah 26. Then Badbag says, delve into the Torah. Now this is a point that we made about the repetition of the Torah. It's also talking about Devarim. Listen. Then Badbag says, delve in it, the Torah, and continue to develve, delve in the Torah, for everything is in it. Look deeply in it. Grow old and gray over it, and do not stir from it, for you can have no better portion than it. All right? In other words, if you go over it again and again, just like life, you're going to see new, 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 new. Okay. Now it says, Ben Hehe says, the reward is in proportion to the exertion. 
So isn't that interesting? So this is the Torah of this world. Ben hey, hey, this is this world. And this is also the time always, every year before Tishabav. There's certain parshas that are fixed, not that many. But certain parshas always come at the exact point relative to a holiday or some event in the Jewish calendar. Sefer Devarim is one of those things. It always comes the Shabbos before Tishabav. Always. And it contains the word Anochi. I'm sorry, not Anochi, Echa. Which, um, which is what we're going to read on Tishabav. Hopefully not, but, but um, it's the Book of Lamentations. So you see, in the Parsha itself, there's a, there's a reference to, to Tishabav. Okay, so, so what does it mean that's the Torah of this world? What does that mean? To the effort goes the reward. That means that this world is a world of work. And to the extent that you work, you will reap benefits. And it's all the more important because it's coming before Tisha B'Av where, where it's incumbent upon us to fix the world. We have to fix the world. So we're getting that Torah right now. To the effort goes the reward. There's a direct correlation between work and accomplishment. So, so if you look more closely, the commentaries say something really far out, which is that ben hey wasn't his real name. That ben hey was actually hiding out from the Romans who wanted to get him. And that he took on this name in reference to Abraham and Sarah. Because Abraham was originally named Avram, and he had a hey added to his name. And Sarah was originally Sarai, and she had a hey added to her name. So he took on the name ben hey Alright, so now, if you're keeping track, we've got at least three sets of hey hey's right? We've got, we've got the hey and the hey, time and space. We've got ben hey hey talking about the Torah of this world. And we've got his name taken from Abraham and Sarah. And by the way, it says in the beginning that the world was created for the sake of Abraham. Bahibaram. Right? Breshis, I think that's, what is it? Right, uh, right after the story of creation. There's a reference to it. Bahibaram. And the Zohar says if you rearrange the letters, Ba'Abraham. Right? For the sake of Abraham, the world was created. Okay, so, so why are we talking about Abraham now and Sarah? So, so listen to this. You know, we have to go back to the Garden of Eden, right? Because, like we mentioned, in Sefer Devarim, we begin with the word, one of the words that we begin right in the beginning of the Parsha is the word Eicha. And so that has significance because we're going to read Eicha later on. Hopefully not, but that's uh, what we've been doing. But Eicha is the same letters as Eicha, which is what Hashem said to Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden. And we're going to connect this to Abraham and Sarah in a moment. So it's a, one of these things we call Kash Torahs. You know, Reb Shlomo had something called Kash Torahs. So he says, you know, he said, sometimes rich people, they're very rich, but all their money is in the bank. 
if you go up to a rich, some certain rich people, you go up to them and you ask them for like a few dollars, they, they never have any money on them, but they're very rich, right? He says other people aren't so rich, but they always have cash in their pocket. So there's certain people who are very, very learned, he says, but if you ask them a question, they have to look it up. They never have the answer for you. I got to look it up, right? All the money is in the bank. They're the people who don't know as much, but the Torah that they have, it's in their pockets. So they can give it to you right away. So there's certain Torahs that are called cash Torahs. That means these Torahs you have to have in your pocket at all times. Right? They're like essential, essential day, day by day, got to get through life Torahs. Okay? So in my humble opinion, this is a cash Torah. Okay? You have to know this one. You have to have it in your pocket. Which is that we weren't kicked out of the Garden of Eden because we ate from the Tree of Knowledge. Okay? If you ask people, why were we kicked out? Everyone's going to tell you it's because we ate from the Tree of Knowledge. It's sort of true. Sort of true. Why isn't it the case? Because we see after we ate from the Tree of Knowledge, we weren't kicked out of the Garden of Eden. (laughs) The very direct proof right there. So when were we kicked out of the Garden of Eden? When Hashem said to us, Ayeka, where are you? Where are you? Because we were hiding. And Hashem, by the way, knew where we were. But we, He was giving us an opportunity to begin a discussion and to sort of engage with Him. You know? Um, and, uh, and to say that we had done something wrong and that we were sorry. So, Avram says... You know, it's all her fault. And Chava says, it's all the snake's fault. And so because we weren't willing to take personal responsibility for our own actions and say, it's my fault, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to try my best not to do it again. Because our first go-to impulse was to blame each other and to blame everyone except us, Hashem says, okay, listen, you know, we've got to start again, but it's not going to be in the Garden of Eden. It's got to be someplace else. And we'll work, our way, we'll work our way back to the Garden of Eden. But it can't be on the Garden of Eden level anymore. So, so on some level, that's pretty deep. Because right before Tisha B'Av, you know... Right before Tisha B'Av, we've got this little hint back to that one moment where we can fix everything by saying, you know what, it's me. It's me. I'm sorry. It's me. I'm going to try not to do it again. To the effort goes to the, the, the reward. That's work. It's so much more work to say it's me. It's so much more work. And it's so much harder. And it only gets harder. You know, I'm a fan of something. Uh, I'm a fan of something called. I like to call it instant chuva. Where, wherever possible, you know. Some people think that you know Rosh and Yom Kippur. That's the time, or Yom Kippur really is the time when I'm, I'm saying all my mistakes to Hashem and I'm fixing them up, whatever it is. So who makes a mistake and then says in six months I'm going to fix it, right? Like, can you imagine you've got a Michelangelo statue in your home worth, 
It's priceless, worth millions of dollars. And then some kids are playing and someone knocks the head off of it. And you go, okay, in six months I'm going to fix it. You would be running, you would be running to some, like, art dealer, some expert, you know, you know, to, like, put it on exactly the way it was before. You'd be running. Now, if that's for a statue, what about your own soul, right? Our souls are infinitely more valuable than a statue. So, so we should accustom ourselves. If we, whatever we do wrong, just run. Run to say, I'm sorry. We can. Because the thing, the weird thing is, this is the whole idea of Chometz on Pesach. See, Chometz stands for ego and sort of like a, all sorts of blockages and things like that. That, you see, something starts off as matzah, but if you wait too long, the, it, it rises and it becomes filled with ego. And then it becomes harder. It becomes harder to, to adjust. So time is, in a way, an enemy to, to tshuva and to humility. Because the longer the event gets separated from the initial act, the more rationalizations come in, the more reasons why I'm not wrong, he's wrong. Right? And then it becomes very complicated. I mean, how many thousands of years has it been? We're still trying to get it right. Right? So, so the Torah allows us to fix all of these things. And it says in, um, it says in the writings about the destruction and the exile and everything like that, about Tishabav, Hashem says, you know, if only they... If they had to abandon me, okay, but only if they, if, if, if only they hadn't abandoned the Torah. So Hashem is quoted, God is quoted, is actually saying, better they should abandon me, but not abandon the Torah. Which is like a far out thing for God to say. And the reason why God says that is because if a person stays with the Torah, they'll stay with Hashem. They'll get back to Hashem. So, through the Torah, we can fix everything. Now, listen to this medrash. What did we say? We said that Sefer Devarim, it's the intersection of time and space. It's the hey and the hey, right? Then hey, hey says, to the effort goes to the reward. We always read this Parsha before, before Tisha B'Av, that that means it's really incumbent upon us to fix Sefer Devarim always has the word Echa, which is a reference to Echa, which is the Garden of Eden, which is the initial problem. But we can fix it with Torah. And now we get back to Abraham and Sarah, which are the hay and the hay, right? So it says that when Abraham went to bury Sarah, that he took her into the cave of the patriarchs, which the Zohar says is the entrance into the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Chava are buried, and that when Abraham entered, Chava got out of her crypt 
Because, and she said, I'm so embarrassed, I'm so ashamed because I'm the one who brought death into the world. Right? And now Avram and Sarah are here. Like, I'm shamed by your righteousness, right? And Avraham consoles Chava and he says, don't worry. He says, we're here to fix it. We're going to fix it. Right? That's through the Torah. And so she's consoled and they're able to rebury her. So, so I was sharing with the Hebra this idea and I just want to make sure that when I say the following that I'm not misunderstood. Uh, it says in the Gomorrah that anyone who predicts the time of the redemption actually delays the redemption. So I want to share a thought with you, but, but I want you to understand it as a thought. It's not a prediction. It's a thought. But I think it's an important thought and something that we have to think about and take seriously. Tisha B'Av is going to be a holiday. We've been promised by God it's going to be a holiday. And it's an, in its essence, it actually is a holiday. I, I gave a talk called The Confusing Nature of Tisha B'Av, which is all about the holiday elements of Tisha B'Av, and it's online on TorahOnItunes.com if you, if you want to hear it. It goes into a lot of the, you know, the true essence of Tisha B'Av. But nonetheless, at this point, we experience it really as the Maximum day of mourning. Maximum. Maximum. The blackest day. But we're promised that it's going to be turned into a holiday. That means that it is going to be a holiday. 100%, 1,000%, it's absolutely going to be a holiday. Well, if it's going to be a holiday, that means that some year it has to be a holiday. One of these years it's going to be a holiday. It just is. So if that's the case, and Tisha B'Av is coming up, it could be this Tisha B'Av that's going to be the holiday. If one of the Tisha B'Avs is going to be a holiday, it's got to start at some point. So it could start this year. We don't know that it won't. By the way, we have to understand something. In terms of God bringing the Geula, you have to understand something. Which is that there, on one hand, it's very rational to say, well, wait a second, there's so much anger and hatred and war and injustice in the world. The world is so not even close to being in a state of redemption that it's for sure not this year. All right, that's one, that's one way of looking at the world. But we also have to understand that God has his own account of when he's going to bring the redemption. The Shem Shmuel sets out very, very, very clearly states that, that Hashem adds up all of the merits of all of the previous generations, and it's a running count. So we have to understand that as much as we just kind of see our own merits or our own shortfalls and everything like that, and the world's merits and the world's shortfalls, at the same time, though, the scoreboard is actually saying something else, very, very different. The scoreboard, so to speak, is, 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 is tallying all of the merits of all of the previous generations. It's not like the Baal Shem Tov's generation, like, because Mashiach didn't come during their time, like, you know, it got zeroed out. It went to zero. That's not what happened. So, in other words, we have to resist just sort of looking at the world in a very, very simple way and say, well, you know, 
everyone's fighting with each other, it's Mashiach is not coming. Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe we're one mitzvah away. With all the thousands of years of mitzvah, all the incredible mysterious nefesh that's been done, how do we know we're not one prayer away? And you know, Reb Shlomo used to say, and how do you know it's not going to be the prayer of a drunken person lying in an alley? How do you know it's not going to be his prayer that's going to be the final prayer that brings Mashiach? We don't know. We don't know whose prayer it's going to be. So one of these years, Tisha B'Av is going to be a holiday. And it could be this year. It could be. I'm not making a prediction. I'm just telling you a fact. It could be. And if it is, if it is, that's Wednesday night, right? So this is Sunday. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That means that there's four days left to the exile. So the question is, what are you going to do with the four days left, possibly, of the exile? It's an amazing thought. You know, it says that when Mashiach comes, we're not going to accept converts anymore. No one can convert to Judaism anymore when Mashiach comes. Because it's going to be very clear, like, what the, what the story is. In other words, spiritually speaking, there are certain opportunities that one can only get during the period of exile. Because to see the light in the darkness is a very, very great act of avoda, a very, very great act of service to Hashem. And that can only be done during the exile. So much so, I've heard Rabbi Green discuss that we're crazy to even daven for Mashiach. And that we wouldn't daven for Mashiach unless Hashem told us to daven for Mashiach. Because the level of joy that Hashem gets from us doing mitzvahs in the darkness is even greater than He gets when we actually know everything that's going on. Right? That's why the service of a human being is so much greater than the service of an angel. An angel sees it all clearly. So spiritually speaking, they're compared to robots. Because they haven't really got free choice that they're overcoming some sort of negative desire in order to serve God, right? So Galus is what makes us so special. Exile is our ace in the hole. It's kind of crazy to think of it in those terms. But we have to see it as an opportunity. So just think about your life right now. And think about, well, wait a second, you know, if everything were to change in a few days, and I've only got the opportunity of exile for a few more days, how would I use it? And by the way, I think that that's shot in the Gomorrah when it says that one of the things that Hashem is going to ask us after 120 is, did you anticipate the coming of Mashiach every day? See, people get very confused about that. They think that that's a prediction. I'm making a prediction. The problem with predictions is you get disappointed. Oh, he didn't come again. Oh, that rabbi said he's coming. He didn't come. What does the rabbi know? Oh, what the, the whole Torah. Well, that, that's not about predictions. That's not the point. The point is, is that God is all powerful that he can do it at any moment. So if you live with that consciousness that everything can change every single day, how are you going to live your life? 
completely differently. Completely differently. Certain things that are problems are not going to be problems. They're going to be opportunities. Wow, that guy just got me so mad. I've got this enormous opportunity to forgive him. (laughs) Right? It's crazy. It's crazy, but it's a totally different way to live your life. It's a totally different way to live your life. You know, I was thinking, you know, one of the things, and so much of it is because of the culture that we're living in right now, and we're going to wrap it up, we're going to finish up, but, um, um, you know, it's like, um, (laughs) it's kind of crazy, you know, it's like everything is so comfort oriented and, you know, everyone wants to make money. So how do I, how, how can I make more money? If I can find some problem that you have and I can solve your problem with some kind of product, then I'll make money. So the entire consciousness of civilization and everything like that is just, how can I just make everything ever more easier? Okay, now that shouldn't be confused with chesed. We always want to do kindness for each other. And that's a very, very positive thing. But I'm talking about sort of like this warped form of it, where we delude ourselves into thinking that this is a world of conflict. That we, that we have to accomplish things in this world. And the, the comfort economy has gotten to such a point where, where we think that any discomfort is actually something weird and wrong and abnormal and poisonous and bad. And any work that I have to do, right? What did we say? Ben Hehe is saying the Torah of this world. To the effort goes the reward. It's a world of work. And any work that I have to do, since this is a world of comfort, must mean that I've been cursed. Why has God cursed me that I have to get out of bed in the morning? Right? I mean, it's really, it's, 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 but that's a state of illusion. That's a state of unreality. And it's a state that we're being sold constantly. So that the natural, normal effort that we make seems increasingly alien and wrong to us. It's like we're slowly being embalmed while we're still alive. So I want to compare it to baseball. You see, opportunities, problems, right? It's it's quoted quite often, but it's Torah. That in Chinese, the word for crisis is the same word for opportunity. These problems are opportunities. Imagine you're a baseball player. And you're standing at the bat. You're standing at home plate and the pitcher is pitching. I'm saying this is life right now. Those of you who know baseball, one of the most frustrating things that you can ever watch is when your best hitter gets up to the plate and there are men on base and he has an opportunity to win the game and they won't pitch the ball to him. Right? They do an intentional walk. Have you ever seen that? Where the batter steps or the catcher steps all the way off to the side and he just throws it to an area where the hitter cannot hit the ball. Right? An intentional walk? You can't earn anything. You've been nullified. 
God doesn't do that to us. If God didn't send us problems, if God didn't send us opportunities, crises, however you want to say it, we would be neutralized as active participants in this world. We would be able to accomplish nothing in this world. Our humanity itself would be taken from us. So what does God do? He gives us opportunities. He throws the ball and he throws the ball and he throws the ball. But here's a crucial point, and we all have to understand this. God is not throwing the ball at us. We take it personally. I, another problem. God, why are you doing that to me? We think God is throwing the ball at us. He's not throwing it at us. And to the extent that we're getting hit by the ball, it's usually because we're in the way. That's the greatest sign to us that we have to move. So then you go, okay, well, it's good if the ball is thrown. That means I'm alive and I can accomplish in this world. And I should expect for it to be thrown because all of us are born with a baseball bat in our hands. We're all born at home playing with a baseball bat in our hands. That's life. And if we understand that the challenges that face us are not because God is trying to bean us and take us out, but that this is the normal course of the world. I think I'm communicating. I, I, I don't think that I have to explain it further, but I just want to just throw one more thing, just so we really understand. If we think of the most idyllic state of existence spiritually, it was the Garden of Eden. But don't forget, the Garden of Eden also had a snake in it. Right? The snake was God throwing the ball to the batter. Even before eating from the tree of knowledge, Adam and Chava had a bat in their hand and they were at home playing. Because the snake was in the Garden of Eden even before they ate from the tree of knowledge. That means the game started right away. And when we think of paradise, we think of a place without challenge. The snake was in the Garden of Eden from the outset. There is no such thing as a place or a realm or a context without challenge. It doesn't exist. It's a figment. And it's a figment that we're constantly trying to be sold. Buy this product and all of your problems are going to go away. Take this drug and all of your problems are going to go away. It's, it's a lie. It's a lie. So once we understand what the nature of this world is, then the next step is to embrace it. So we'll finish by saying that, you know, a ball game has nine innings. Right? Just to continue the metaphor. It has nine innings. And God gives an end date for the world also. And you know what? Everyone wants to be in the game. And when you're not in the game, you miss being in the game. And if this is the end of the game, then you want to make every moment count, right? 